Thank you, Alicia, for reading God's word to us. Well, it's great to be up here again to continue uh, the sermon series from the book of Galatians that Paul has written. Uh, there won't be a question time today after the uh, sermon uh, because we've got communion. But today is the last day of the school holiday, so we do have the kids in the service with us. Uh, so kids, you might like to follow along in your own Bibles, or you might like to use the activity sheets uh, to help you listen as we go through this part of God's Word. Well, my family has this great ability to discuss with authority things that we know very little about. <laughs> we can discuss and even argue pretty much anything as, as if we know what we're talking about when we have no clue. And it's kind of almost a superpower that we have. And so it seems like the less we know about the topic, the more we have to say about it. This superpower has been along for, around for as long as I can remember. Um, and my family loves a good discussion. Silence isn't a thing that uh, we really value. Um, and so we have these conversations about absolutely nothing. And we've done so since I was a little young boy at a very early age. I can remember this. Um, and we can speak for a long time. Until one day when my sister brought home her boyfriend, Scott. Scott, who is now my brother-in-law, has changed the way that my family has conversations forever. Because my brother-in-law, he cares about the accuracy of facts. He wants to know what's right and what's wrong, and he wants to know what's true from what is false. He has the ability to listen to our conversations, hear what we're saying, and then point out exactly what is wrong and how we are speaking utter rubbish. <laughs> in, the, in the middle of a perfectly good conversation, he listens to what we're saying, and then he goes and he looks something up. He looks up some fact, he interrupts our conversations, and then he disapproves of the entire thing. And as soon as he does this, the conversation is completely over. One person has the ability to completely disprove everything we are saying, completely shut down the discussion and ruin our, our superpower that our family has. And he does it simply because he was able to bring in the facts. He told the truth. He silenced the room. So last week, as we began the sermon series in Galatians, I explained how Paul defends the gospel that he has preached. As he starts this letter, he reminds the Galatians that what they had received at the very beginning, the gospel that he had proclaimed to them, is the one and only gospel. It is the one and only gospel because it comes from God. It is not a man-made gospel, but one received by men from God. And so the question then arises, how do we know that Paul's message is actually from God and that he hasn't added anything to it? And this is a really important question to ask because it gives us 
certainty that what Paul is preaching about, which is how we are saved, is actually the truth. And just as my brother-in-law Scott knew he could silence my family's ridiculous conversations with the truth, Paul knows that the truth can silence the false teachers, the false teachers who are bringing trouble to the Galatian churches. The truth will provide what is needed in order to prove that these false teachers are saying a distorted gospel. What they are saying is man-made and false. And therefore, it is a gospel that should not be followed. The passage we're looking at today is Paul's defense of the truth. And so would you please pray with me that we can concentrate, that we can understand what God has to say to us today. Would you please bow your heads? Heavenly Father, uh, please help me as I uh, speak today. I just uh, thank you for showing yourself to be gracious and true. And by your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would allow everyone here to hear your word and to have it change the way that they think and act. Help us all to give all glory to you forever and ever. In your son's, we, uh, son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the message that the Apostle Paul has preached to the Galatian churches, taught them that because they were forgiven by the death and resurrection of Jesus, they were free from keeping the laws of the Old Testament. They were also free from their previous slavery and the lie of worshipping these other gods that weren't really gods at all. And they were free from their sin. The freedom of the gospel delivers them from this present evil age. But clearly there were some that were questioning the freedom that Paul is preaching. Because in this passage, Paul gives a defense for his teaching. See, Paul here is claiming that what he has been preaching is from God. But since he is just a man himself... Isn't it true that he too could also be making things up? He also could be changing the gospel. And so perhaps his gospel isn't actually God's, but it too is also man-made. So how can anyone be sure that what Paul is preaching is actually really from God? And so these false teachers that come along that Paul talks about in this passage are troubling the Galatians by asking this exact question. They are asking, how can you be sure that what Paul is preaching is from God? And not just something that he has made up himself. And what's incredible is that these false teachers are actually using God's word. They're using the Bible. They're using the Old Testament as a basis for their argument. And so this gives them grounds to accuse Paul of preaching a gospel of his own, a man-made gospel and one that's not from God. And so here Paul wants to defend the gospel that he is preaching. 
And he does it by flipping what he is being accused of and showing them how they are the ones who are actually preaching a gospel that's man-made, not him, a false gospel. And so what's really important for us to understand is that the motivation behind the gospel that these false brothers are teaching is really important because their motivation may well have been really well-intentioned. Their motivation was for unity amongst God's people. See, what these false brothers are concerned about is how these Galatians Christians were going to live a holy life. How are they going to stand out while still living among this pagan culture? How are they going to remain separate? How are they going to be clean? How do they live in a manner that's acceptable to God? And so their answer comes from God's covenant to their forefather Abraham back in the Old Testament. They see that the covenant agreement, agreement with Abraham is the way that God has established for his people to be set apart forever. And so for us to understand the motives of these false brothers, we need to actually go back and have a look at this covenant back in Genesis chapter 17. Would you all please flip with me back to Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis chapter 17 is where Abraham is given the covenant of circumcision. And firstly, in Genesis chapter 17, I want to remind you that this is the passage where Abraham has his name changed. So God says, you're no longer going to be called Abram. You're going to be called Abraham. And Abraham means the father of many nations. And look with me at what uh, it says from verse 9 onwards. This is Genesis chapter 17, starting at verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is of not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This passage is inclusive of everybody and is final 
And so we really need to be careful with this passage because we need to notice here that there is this inclusivity. God is making allowances for other people to come in and be bought in as outsiders. And he welcomes them into his family. And he does it through circumcision. Can you also see in this passage how God allows for this to be an everlasting covenant? And can you see how God is clear that if it is not done, then his people have broken his covenant? And so can you see then also how those false brothers may look at this and they may see that they can welcome the Galatian Christians in as long as they are circumcised. They can become part of God's family and they can be part of this multitude of nations that is talked about here. Can you see how they could do this through unity? And also see, uh, when you flip to the New Testament, math, in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, there's that famous passage that you can use uh, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, these people that Paul calls false prophets are accusing Paul of changing or adding to the gospel of how God is going to deal with his people. And this happens to be the same message that Jesus also preached. And so because Paul says that they do not need to be circumcised anymore, he is actually being accused of misrepresenting both God and Jesus. And if he is misrepresenting God... And if he tells you there's no reason to adhere to this everlasting covenant that God established with Abraham, then you can pretty much discount everything else he has to say. You completely disregard anything he has said and anything that he has written as well. But Paul actually says that they are the ones who have misunderstood this covenant. In Romans chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 28, Paul spells out the error in their thinking. An error that has actually been, a, been around for generations before him. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In Romans chapter 2, you see, it says that in order to be part of God's family, the circumcision that is needed is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit. It is an inward spiritual cutting of the heart, not an outward and physical one. And so these false teachers were challenging who Paul was as an apostle. 
They were challenging his testimony and they were challenging his ministry. And so in this passage before us today, we have Paul's defense of his testimony and his defense of his ministry. We're going to take some time to look at these two things and the implications for our life. So first of all, his defense for his testimony, and then secondly, his defense of his ministry. The defense of his testimony is found from verses 11 through to 16. I would like to read them again, starting from, so we're back in Galatians chapter 1, starting from verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it for any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who has set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul here shows us that his transformed life is the most compelling case that he can make for the truth of the gospel. See, he explains in these verses how God has completely changed the course of his life. How not only was he opposed to what God was doing, he also persecuted the church of God violently. And he tried to destroy it. But then he says in verse 15 how he was called by God's grace and set apart even before he was born. Paul's conversion, that we can actually read more about in Acts chapter 9 if you want to, is the living and active way that God's grace is shown. God's all-consuming power is most evident in Paul's transformed life. Paul's defense to the false brothers is to say to them, how else can you explain the complete U-turn that happened in my life? Before I met Jesus, I used to persecute Christians. And we read further on in verse 23 where Paul points out that even those who were in the churches in Judea have heard about him. They've heard about he was the one who used to persecute them and how he is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. God must have been involved in the transformation of Paul's life. See, we've been going through the book of Matthew where Jesus has done these amazing miracles. He has raised people from the dead. He has made the blind see. He has healed the lepers. But what we remember time and time again is that those were not the reason why Jesus came. 
He came to rescue people from their sins. He came to pay the price for our sins, to deliver people from this present evil age. And so what that means is that a transformed life, a person who has changed from their old self to the new self, all because of God's grace through Jesus Christ, is so much more miraculous than any miracle that Jesus did while he was here on earth. Friends, I want to tell you this. I could get a brand new eye today, and it would not be the most miraculous thing that has ever happened to me. And it's no different to you and for you. See, your transformed life is evidence of how what we read in the Bible is still relevant today. The fact that Jesus gave himself up for your sins and delivered you from this present evil age is evidence that the gospel that was revealed to you is true. Your changed life is your best defense for the gospel because it makes it real. It makes it living and active in this present age. It stands out as a testament of truth. So whatever you do, don't forget that. And don't not use it. Don't suppress the Spirit's work in your life because it is God's power at work in you. It is your best defense for the gospel. Our transformed lives in this present evil age which is our inability to come to Christ on our own merits, but only through his, is the confirmation that we all need to know for sure that the gospel we follow is true. And not only this, it is exactly what will speak most loudly to those around us. So I beg you to use your story. Use the way that God has called you by his grace. Allow him to be at work in you so that he might use you through your testimony to bring those you care about to know and love him also. Paul goes on. He doesn't only just use his testimony as a defense for the gospel, but he also uses his ministry as a defense for the gospel as well. See, his ministry is a defense for the gospel because what was revealed to him on that road to Damascus is the very same thing that the apostles who lived and breathed with Jesus preached also. They are preaching the same gospel. So in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul explains that when he met with the apostles, they added nothing to what he was already preaching. And Paul says, surely this can only happen with the gospel that comes from God. 
Paul explains that his ministry as an apostle is valid because when he meets with these other apostles, those who actually walked with Jesus, those who were taught by Jesus, those who were there and saw him crucified, those who were there and saw the risen and resurrected Jesus, those who were there and saw him ascend into heaven, those same eyewitnesses, when they met with Paul, they approved everything that he had been preaching and teaching. They literally added nothing. Paul explains that after he received this revelation from Jesus, there was 14 years of ministry where he preached the gospel. 14 years from when he received this revelation to when he discussed it with the apostles in Jerusalem. He explains how his ministry was appointed by God to take this gospel to the nations. He was instructed to go to the people of the world, and that's exactly what he did. And then after 14 years, when he finally met with the apostles in Jerusalem, they confirmed all that he has been saying and offered him the right hand of fellowship. And so Paul says... If you're going to throw out my teaching, then you have to throw out the apostles' teaching. And for that matter, you will also have to throw out Jesus' teaching as well. Because there's no difference. They all speak the same truth. This means that there is no way that his gospel can be simply something that he made up. It is not man-made, nor does it come through man, but rather it is the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul defends his testimony in his ministry because he understands that he is both living and proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the truth that will silence these false teachers. And that's exactly what happens in verses 4 and 5 in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them... We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Because Paul didn't yield in submission even for a moment, the truth of the gospel silenced these false brothers. And the truth of the gospel has been preserved for us. And so friends, we must have the same mind as Paul. When people tell us that the gospel is irrelevant or outdated, we must be willing to protect it whatever the cost, because it has been and it will always be the only power for salvation of sinners. Just as a witness stands in front of a courtroom and proclaims a testimony, 
that is true of themselves, and they do it regardless of who is opposing them. They do it because they know that their testimony can be the overpowering truth in the case against what is false. And we too can find comfort knowing that the truth of the gospel will silence anyone who comes preaching a different gospel. See, we have the same truth that was preserved for us. We have the same ability to use this truth to silence anyone who comes preaching a different gospel. And so will you. Will you preach the gospel even if you are in the minority? Will you continue to follow Christ and him crucified? Will you speak of the freedom you have through the grace of our Heavenly Father? Will you speak of the forgiveness of sins that only comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus? Will you join with Paul in saying, I will not boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, there will be some who will come and preach a false gospel, but remember that what they preach is no gospel at all, because there is only one gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for setting us apart before we were born and calling us by your grace. Help us hold on to your message that so shows us the freedom we have from the sins that have entangled us. Give us the strength to preserve your gospel in this place and not allow even for a moment anyone to preach a different gospel. And I pray this through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, well, you might like to just take a moment to consider uh, what was said. I'm going to ask Izzy to come up and lead us in our next song.